from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 9th. Today, what fires in Australia tell us about climate change, Trump's success in remaking the judiciary, and the unfolding royal drama. Hundreds of wildfires are burning across southeastern Australia. These fires are the size of whole countries. We're talking 26 million acres. That's nearly 110,000 square miles of land which have been decimated by fire. The fires have destroyed thousands of homes. They've decimated wildlife. The Australian government says that thousands of koalas have been killed. Australia is already a a huge country geographically. So on top of several years of drought, there's so much fuel in the country that can burn. And these fires have become vicious and ferocious because of the dry material that's being swept into the path of the fire. Kate Shuttleworth is a journalist based in Melbourne. She's been reporting on the fires for the past two months. I've reported natural disasters, earthquakes in New Zealand, and I've reported war. And this was unlike nothing I've ever seen. We chartered a boat and travelled nearly six hours along the Australian coastline through the Bass Strait, which is an extremely rough patch of sea. And all along that coast, there was a haunting yellow-orange backdrop, and the air was thick with smoke, at times really difficult to breathe. And the whole coast was on fire, and that was when I realised the scale of these fires. You could see them burning. It was haunting. It was apocalyptic. As we arrived on shore, the street scenes in the small town of Malakuta were extreme, Whole streets were wiped out, houses left in rubble. It was like a bomb had gone off. Rows and rows of blackened trees stood precariously. I spoke to people in Malakuta and all across East Gippsland. Some told me they were ready wearing life jackets just in case the fire did get to the beach and they needed to be ready to jump in the water. So they were literally running for their lives and they were prepared to swim for their lives. Others had buried themselves in the sand because they could feel the radiant heat from these fires 300 metres away and they needed to protect themselves. People are terrified by these fires. Many people have said to us or said to me that they've experienced fires their whole lives, but they, they usually happen every, say, five to ten years. Now they're saying that they're happening every year and people just don't know quite what to expect if they're going to be safe And sometimes the fire services don't have the resources or the time to warn people and communities are having to flee at the last minute or are caught in these fires. As I can see it, there's no end in sight yet. There is still over two months of bushfire season in store. And in January and February, Australia has some of its hottest days and that's still yet to come. So there's 
Fires definitely carry the unmistakable fingerprints of climate change. The conditions that led to them and the behavior they've exhibited are all exactly the kind of thing that models and scientists say we should be expecting more of. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a climate reporter at The Post. So, Sarah, our colleague Kate in Australia, she said that these fires are bigger than than countries. What exactly does that mean? Like, how big are these fires and, and how hot are they? They're incredibly huge. And it's they're also there's so many fires. Um, I mean, Australian officials have pinpointed hundreds of ignition points where these fires start. And if you look at NASA satellite images, you see practically a ring of red around the Australian continent. Almost everywhere where there is forest, there is fire. One of the latest numbers suggested that the square mileage is about the size of Indiana. And they're incredibly extreme and aggressive also. Temperatures in a wildfire like this are thousands of degrees Celsius. um, And they can exhibit all kinds of really intense behaviors because a fire this hot actually creates its own weather. There are these massive updrafts of hot air that can cause fire tornadoes. Um, They can cause these clouds to form above them that then produce lightning strikes, which produce more fires. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just, I mean, when you have conditions like Australia has had, this intense drought and this intense heat, you get fires that behave in the most severe and unpredictable ways. And that's what Australia is dealing with. So what we're talking about is both a lot bigger and a lot more intense than even what we've seen in California over the last couple of years. Yeah, these fires are a lot bigger. and But the thing is that they're not, they're not unpredicted, right? We've seen global warming cause severe drought in Australia. December marks the start of the Australian summer. And this December was the hottest month in Australia's recorded history. Mm. The average temperature across the continent for that month was 3.2 degrees Celsius, which is almost six degrees Fahrenheit higher than normal. And, you know, the globe has warmed one degree Celsius above the pre-industrial level. So three degrees is like what we expect the globe to achieve by the end of the century. And Australia is already there. So what a lot of scientists and a lot of Australians are asking is if if this is what global warming looks like now in Australia, these really severe fires that have killed people, that have harmed a billion animals, that have destroyed so much of the very rare and unique landscape in Australia, what does the future look like? And in the short term, what does the end of these fires look like? I mean, do do firefighters have a handle on this and do they know how to start at least limiting the the damage from this? Or are we just expecting these fires to continue to burn in the coming month? Yeah, with fires like this, there is no controlling them. Australia has this thing called the Forest Fire Danger Index. You know, it kind of ranks the um, risk of fire starting in a forest on a scale from zero to 150. And They actually added the sort of 100 to 150 a few years ago because they were repeatedly off the charts. And so that's part from 100 to 150 is called catastrophic fire risk. And much of Australia is in that state. And when you have catastrophic fire conditions, you have this really dry fuel, really intense heat. You know, that's one of the main ingredients for fire. Then all you need is 
an ignition point and some wind, which Australia has also been experiencing. And there's no stopping those blazes then. So in those circumstances, kind of all you can do is get out of the way. Australia faces an especially special challenge because much of their firefighting force are volunteers um, who are already exhausted because this fire season began in September, which is like the start of, it's like March on the Northern Hemisphere. So that's really early. They've been fighting this for a really long time. They're low on resources. Firefighters have died already because of these really intense and unpredictable conditions. So like the danger is far from over. It's kind of just beginning. So the fact that these fires right now are expected to continue and and also that fires in Australia generally will probably continue to get worse in coming years, what does that mean for Australia? That is a really big question. We've spoken to a lot of climate scientists, including one researcher watching fire come closer and closer to her home. She lives in Duras, which is a coastal town near Canberra. And she said she really worries that Australia is approaching a major ecological shift. It's always been the hottest inhabited continent. It's always been vulnerable to extremes because it's surrounded by these two um, very powerful ocean weather patterns, El Nino, which a lot of people are familiar with in the Pacific, and this seesawing weather pattern in the Indian Ocean called the Indian Ocean Dipole. And those can kind of push hot or wet or cold air over the continent and cause really extremes. And that's what we've been seeing with the season. But those phenomena are expected to get more intense with climate change, which means that the extremes Australia experiences will become more intense. That means that, you know, fires are going to become worse and they're going to destroy a lot of this very important and rare forest landscape that isn't found anywhere else in the world. That forest is an important carbon sink that is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, so we lose that, and instead we are turning it into a carbon source by having it all light on fire. So it's going to—it's a real question of you know how much longer is Australia going to continue to be the place that people know and the place that people can live. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. So I came in, and in the first couple of days, I said, by the way, how many uh, federal judgeships do I have? They said, sir, you have 142. I said, what? (laughs) You have 142, sir. I said, you got to be kidding. 142. No matter what happens with President Trump, whether he wins re-election or not, he has cemented his legacy in the federal judiciary. The Senate will come to order, the chaplain. The reason why all Republicans really are so excited about him 
is because he made this promise to appoint very conservative judges to the federal bench, and he has kept that promise. Karen Spencer Marston of Pennsylvania to be United States District Judge. Daniel Mack Trainer of North Dakota. Jody W. Dishman of Oklahoma. The nomination's confirmed. The nomination is confirmed. John M. Gallagher. Bernard Maurice The nomination's confirmed. Mary Kay Viscasil of New York. The nomination is confirmed. The clerk will report the next nomination. I'm Colby Ekowitz, and I'm a national politics reporter. Just before winter recess, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pushed through 13 district court judges, giving President Trump a total of 187 judges that he has now appointed to the federal bench since becoming president. That sounds like a lot of judges. Is it more than what you would have seen in the first term of President Obama? It is more. So far, Trump has appointed 50 judges to circuit court benches in three years. President Obama appointed 55 in his entire eight years. And mostly we're seeing that at the circuit court level. Now, that's the highest court before you get to the Supreme Court. And because we know the Supreme Court doesn't take a lot of cases, it's often the last stop. And the judges that that President Trump has chosen, how do they skew? Like, what kinds of judges are they? I mean, we're, we're talking about ideologically far right. There was a time when judges had to be approved by both senators from a state. So if you had a state like Pennsylvania, where you have a Republican and a Democrat senator, they would have to be in agreement on the person that they wanted sitting on the bench in their state. And Mitch McConnell got rid of that. So now, basically, you can just fast track anybody through. And what that's meant is that President Trump can put forward these very conservative, very far right, people with really strong opinions on things like abortion and marriage and not face much backlash for that. And these judges, do they have a term limit? For what period of time are we going to see them making decisions on the bench? The reason why President Trump's legacy is cemented now is because these judges have lifetime appointments and he is appointing them at young ages, men and women in their 40s and 50s. And so he has ensured that there's going to be a conservative tilt to the federal judiciary for decades. So how did we get here and how did it become such a big priority for McConnell to get these judges confirmed? McConnell figured out a long time ago that the judiciary was a way to get his policies through. At a time when Congress was at a stalemate, at an impasse, it's really hard to get anything through Congress because it is so partisan. You can bring issues up before the courts and get your policies enacted that way. I mean, we're seeing it play out right now with the Affordable Care Act. They tried for years to repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and when they failed to do so, they sued and said it was unconstitutional. And so if you have judges, benches that support your worldview, there's a chance that you can impact policy through judges. So in terms of of McConnell's calculus, it's like what he's thinking is like, Rather than wasting all this time in the Senate trying to pass bills that are never going to be able to pass the House anyways because it's controlled by Democrats, just focus on getting these judges in place. And once the judges are in place, it doesn't matter what the law is, that you will have judges who will interpret existing laws in a way that are favorable for what Republicans want. You saw that play out most dramatically in President Obama's last year in office when Justice Anton Scalia passed away unexpectedly and he had an opening on the Supreme Court. Obama decided that he was going to appoint someone that was fairly centrist, someone who had been approved by Republicans overwhelmingly in the past, 
and nominated Merrick Garland to the disappointment of many progressives. And McConnell refused to allow the Senate to even hold a hearing, let alone a confirmation vote. And then he was able to fill that seat with a conservative. And then he had another opening on the Supreme Court. And now that makes two. And we don't know what's going to happen in the next year. But if President Trump wins re-election, the chance that he will be able to fill even more seats on the Supreme Court in the following four years is pretty high. And what are the issues that are currently being battled on the federal court level that could really ride on who ends up being the judge hearing those cases? There's the big social issues like abortion, marriage equality, climate, health care. All of those major issues could be put before the Supreme Court in the next several years. But there's also, interestingly enough, issues that are personal to President Trump that are coming up before the circuit courts. Uh, He flipped one of the circuit court of appeals in the South that is going to be taking up a lot of the voting rights issues in the next year. That will be able to dictate who is able to vote in the 2020 election. Exactly. And then in New York, he flipped the second circuit in New York. New York is hearing questions about the emoluments clause and whether or not President Trump is personally profiting off of his presidency. So now he has flipped two circuit courts who are hearing cases that could impact him both personally and politically. When I talked to experts uh, in the federal judiciary, what they told me is that the courts have shifted rightward under Trump, but it hasn't been revolutionary. Of the 50 circuit court judges that Trump has appointed, two-thirds of them filled previously Republican spots. He only shifted a third of them. But if President Trump wins re-election in November, he'll have another four years of vacancies to fill. And that's going to happen at the circuit court level. And it's likely to happen at the Supreme Court level, too. And so progressives and liberals really want to impart over the next year that there are a lot of issues at stake in the 2020 election, but one of the biggest ones is President Trump's uh, lasting impact on the courts. Colby Ikowitz writes about politics for The Post. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm two more federal judges. Senate will come to order. Nomination, the judiciary, Matthew H. Solemson of Maryland to be a judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims. The ayes are 89, the nays are 8, and the nomination is confirmed. The clerk will report the next nomination. Nomination, the judiciary, Eleni Maria Rumal of Maryland to be judge of Both will serve in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims for a 15-year term. And now, one more thing from London. Where do I start with this? Um, so Britain's Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, also known as the Duchess of Sussex, they announced on their Instagram account last night that they would be stepping back from their roles as senior royals and that they wanted to become financially independent, so they wanted to work 
and earn their own money and that they wanted to split their time going forward between the United Kingdom and North America. That is Jennifer Hassan. I'm the social media editor for The Foreign Desk and I'm based in London. Jennifer has written a lot about Harry and Meghan over the years. And she says that the fact that the couple is stepping back from royal duties is not actually that surprising. When Harry met Meghan and he came out and said, yep, I'm dating her, you know, she's the girl from me, the media just instantly became obsessed with them. And she didn't really understand, I don't think, how um, relentless they can be, how nasty they can be, how they can put you on a pedestal one moment and then really tear you down the next. So media coverage of Meghan, well, since they began dating in 2016, has been nonstop. Their reporting had racial undertones. Meghan has a a white father and an African-American mother. So while Harry said that, you know, he's tried to adopt a thick skin and he was basically saying that, that the media had really crossed the line. It's also been quite clear that Meghan, especially, and Prince Harry have not been happy. There was an interview in October last year with ITV News where Meghan was visibly under a lot of strain and a lot of pressure. And she spoke about life under like the intense glare of the British press. It's um, hard. When I first met my now husband, my friend's were really happy because I was so happy. But my British friend said to me, I'm sure he's great, but you shouldn't do it because the British tabloids will destroy your life. And I very naively, I'm American, we don't have that there. What are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. I'm not in tabloids. And for, and for my wife, you know, there's a, there's a, of course there's a lot of stuff that hurts, um, especially when the majority of it is untrue. I will not be bullied <laughs> into, into, into playing a game that, that killed my mum. It has blindsided the palace, really, and the palace put a very short statement out last night that they'd been talking to Meghan and Harry and they were in the early stages of that and there's a lot now for them to talk through. So there are a lot of questions now around, you know, how exactly will they split that time? It's important to note that while they're saying that they're stepping back, they've not said that they're stepping down. So they haven't said, hey, you'll never see or hear from us again. We definitely haven't seen the loss of them in terms of their royal duties and as members of the royal family. Jennifer Hassan is a social media editor for The Foreign Desk at The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode, our colleague Jason Resign unpacks the history of the U.S.'s fraught relationship with Iran. Even when we had eyes and ears on the ground and presumably a large intelligence presence in that country, we got it wrong. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44-episode podcast journey through American presidential history. If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the Presidential Challenge in 2020. 
Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House, what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers. When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad? And with award-winning journalists. The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. You can find all 44 episodes of the Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms.